Our scripture reading is from Genesis 1:27 and Genesis 2:7. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here, and thanks for being with us this morning. And we are continuing in our series through the book of Genesis, and we are still in chapters one and two. Uh, we've been here for about a month uh, now, and we will eventually uh, get out of chapters one and two. But these first two chapters of Genesis are so critical for understanding not just the book of Genesis, but really the whole story of Scripture that we want to spend some time uh, soaking in them at the beginning. And so as we've studied so far, um, we've established that God has made a good world with beauty and meaning and order and purpose, and that this was meant to function, this world was designed to function as, as a kind of temple, a place where God would dwell with His people, a place where they would meet and enjoy one another. We've seen that we as human beings are made in God's image to reflect Him, to uh, connect with Him and others, to rule and reign over His world with Him as kings and queens commissioned to govern the good world that He has made, to, to make something of it, to draw out all of its potentiality. Now imagine that you are living in that place, in the garden, this beautiful perfect place where all is as it should be. And, and every day there, you're discovering something new about the world, about yourself, and, and at some point in that process, it's, it's bound to happen. You, sit, you sort of look down and you say, I've, I've, I've got a body. And then also you, you look further down and you're like, I, and, and I'm naked. I'm not wearing any clothes here in the garden, which is okay, because in the garden, right, there's no shame yet. The fall hasn't happened. It's okay. But, but that's not the world we live in now, right? We don't live in that world today. And so think about this, though. God decided to give you a body. And, and not just any body, but the particular body that is sitting in the pew here this morning. The particular set of ears that you're hearing my voice with right now. Those particular eyes that you're viewing this room with. And how do you feel about that? you've been given a body. This, this thing that you can't even separate from you, your body, physical and, and now frail, it was God's idea. And, and bodies that want, when you really stop thinking, they can be so weird, so strange, and, and they are, they're so needy as well. They need rest and water and oxygen, and you've got to feed them and take care of them. They, they do things that we don't want them to. They, they age, they wear out, they, they smell bad sometimes, they, they get sick, they get sore. So, so the next time that you are standing naked in front of the mirror, Next time that you're, you're sitting on the toilet, you've got to remind yourself, this was God's idea. This, this thing was God's idea. Your favorite, your least favorite body parts, even the most intimate, male and female, all of it God's idea. And yet I think this side of the fall, it can be easy to wonder if our bodies even really matter that much. If, there, if there's something that, are there just something to be endured, something that hopefully we can escape one day? 
As I think many, maybe even most of us, if we're honest, we don't like our bodies. Oh, again, or at the very least see them as a sort of a necessary evil. And some of us feel shame or regret about our maleness, our femaleness. Some of us feel like we're completely trapped in the wrong body altogether. We're broken, aren't we? And broken not just in sort of the immaterial part of us, our heart or our mind, but, but in everything, in our bodies. And yet, as we look back to the garden, the, the way things ought to be, the way things should be, I want you to hear something that, that maybe you thought you would never hear in a sermon. And, and if you only take one thing away from this morning, and I hope it's this, and that is that your body is not a mistake. Your body is not a mistake. Now, it's broken. How you experience it is broken, but you are not a mistake. Your body is not a mistake. So I invite you, if you haven't already, to turn with me to that page one or two of your Bible, to Genesis chapters one and two. Uh, Pull it up on your phone. We're going to be looking at some key verses in those chapters this morning. And we see it right there on page one that we are made male and female, created in God's image. And, And we're going to take these two weeks in this particular topic because there is so much in these verses, particularly Genesis 1.27 and what it means to be made male and female. There's so much confusion and hurt and shame in our world around this. And today we're going to focus primarily on our physicality as embodied human beings. And then next week uh, we'll look more uh, particularly at how our physicality is expressed in sexuality. So, right, just easy, minor topics, no big deal. Um, I'm really glad that you came to church this morning. Uh, maybe you were thinking, I don't know if I'm glad I came to church this morning, but I'm really glad that you came to church this morning because these are so important and they are things that we wrestle with deeply. I think sometimes we can think as a culture that we are so progressive that we've, we've moved be kind of beyond the old-fashioned ways of, of the Bible or the kind of the repressive ages of, of kind of Christianity, but here's the thing, you, you may not like what the Bible has to say about sexuality or gender, but if we're really honest, when we look around at our broader culture, do, does our culture really have it figured out? Is it really painting a picture of human flourishing in these areas? There's so much confusion, abuse, shame, we're miserable, aren't we? Perhaps maybe God can show us a better way. So let's pray to him now before we go any further this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you that you hear us when we pray, that you hear our our voices. You don't just sense our thoughts, but you actually hear our voices, the embodied voice when we pray. Would you help us this morning to have a deeper understanding and appreciation for who you've made us to be in your image with bodies. We pray this in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus who had a body, who indeed still has a body. Amen. So your body is not a mistake. And we're going to see five things 
about that this morning. Uh, don't worry, we're still, still normal length serving, just five points. Five things this morning um, that we are going to go through, uh, but because it is five things, we, we better get going in this and, and jump right in. So the first thing that we see here in the text is that we are on purpose. You, including your body, is not an accident. We are on purpose. In fact, you don't just have a body. Sometimes we talk about that, I have a body, but you actually are a body. Material and immaterial combined together to make a human being, to be a human being, is to have a body. And, and look specifically at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, I'll have it up on the screen here, but take a look there. You'll see it. The purposefulness, the intentionality, the material and the immaterial together. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust, from the dust, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So, so God forms us as human beings out of the dust, on purpose, physicality, materiality, atoms, molecules, cells, the stuff of matter. It's what we are made of. And then he breathes his life into us. And God calls what he has made on purpose, infused with life, not just good, but very good. All of it, not just the immaterial. He doesn't just sort of look at human beings and say, well, your spirit is good. Your body's kind of okay. No, the whole of who you are, very good. Your body matters. We are both dust and breath, united together to form a human being. God gave you a body. Jesus has a body. When Jesus rose again, he had a body. He has a body right now. You will have a body in new creation. Uh, we, We don't become ghosts when we die. We don't just become immaterial spirits that's a very Greek idea. It's not, a, it's not a biblical idea. Human beings have bodies, and it's a gift. Uh, it's not a burden to escape, a problem to be solved, or even just a tool to be used however we want. Our bodies are a gift. They're on purpose. And I think sometimes we forget that when we care for our bodies well, we actually care for our spirits also because we're united together as as a whole. With spiritual formation, we use that language in the church sometimes to talk about our growth and our relationship with spiritual formation, but spiritual formation happens to you as a whole person. It's not like you can sort of choose, I'm going to just form my spirit apart from my body. It doesn't work like that. Spiritual formation happens to you as a whole person with a body. For example, I am a better Christian when I'm well-rested. I'm more likely to trust, to forgive, to be patient, to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit when I've had a good night's sleep. Why? Because we're embodied. We can't separate who we are as bodies from who we are as people in Christ, as as being spiritually formed. We are whole creatures. Your body matters to Jesus, which is why, like we talked about last week, rest is so important. It's not something that is sort of separate from our spiritual formation. It's it's an important, vital part of it. And and for those of us who obsess about our bodies, maybe we're worried it's not thin enough or ripped enough or attractive enough, God has given you that particular body. And He says it's good. 
that it's not a mistake, that you are not a mistake, that you don't have to bow to our culture's expectations of beauty. God has already called you beautiful. He made you. You are on purpose. You are not a mistake. So second, not only are we on purpose, we are also glorious together. So we're on purpose, but we're also glorious together. He made us different on purpose because we're not just generic, bland, indistinct, androgynous human beings. You know, when God made human beings, He made them male and female. And you see this back in chapter 1 in verses 26 and 27. Look at the first part of verse 26. Then God said, let us make man. That word man, there's the generic Hebrew word for humankind. You say, let us make mankind or humankind in our image after our likeness. So God created mankind, humankind in His own image In the image of God, He created them. Then two distinct words, male and female, He created them. Male and female together, fully, truly, equally human, beautifully, wonderfully, gloriously distinct. So fully, truly, equally human, beautifully, wonderfully, gloriously distinct, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like any other profound Christian reality? Well, the the answer is when we look at the image, like whose image as human beings we reflect, because Christians believe in the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, sameness, three beautifully, wonderfully distinct persons, Sameness and unity, otherness and distinctiveness. So how does the same other God, the one God who exists eternally in three persons, how does He make finite creatures to reflect His unity as well as His diversity? How does He do it? Well, He makes male and female. Same dignity, worth, Given the same mission, task of of exercising rule over the earth for glory, we are the same fully, gloriously human, and that was radically countercultural at the time that this was written. And still radically countercultural in many parts of the world today, that men and women are equal in worth and value and dignity, that that women aren't somehow fundamentally less than men. No, no other culture or religion had said anything like that, that men and women bear God's image together. No, that was brand new when Genesis was written. But we're not just the same. We are male and female. And there are distinct ways in which femaleness reflects the image of God. It's distinct ways in which our maleness reflects the image of God. And we cannot fully image God as either just male or female alone. We need one another gloriously together to to reflect God to the world and what He's like. And sometimes I think we can quickly go in our minds to thinking primarily about marriage, but that's, we're, we're a long ways off from that yet. This is not just marriage, this is friendship in the workplace, in school, in the local church community, serving together. This isn't just about marriage, but that we are gloriously together as a community of men and women who reflect and have to together reflect God's image. 
So your gender, your maleness, your femaleness, it matters to God. He made it. It's not a mistake. Your body is not a mistake. And and Jesus picks up on this theme uh, in the New Testament. He actually quotes these passages from Genesis. God made us male and female, same and different, and He did it on purpose. Your body is not a mistake. Uniquely, distinctly beautiful, we are glorious together. And third, because we are glorious together, because we are glorious together, we are also better together. We're better together. Think about it like this. Have you ever been to a a really nice restaurant where on the menu they will suggest like a, a wine pairing to go along with each of the entrees? Right, so you have this red wine, which is great on its own. It's phenomenal on its own. And you have this, this steak, this, this ribeye, this filet, whatever it might be, whatever your cha- steak of choice is. It's amazing on its own. But then you, you pair those two together, that red wine, that steak together, and all of a sudden they're both enhanced, right? They, they draw out flavors that, you wouldn't, that are latent in each that you wouldn't get unless they were together. They enhance and complement one another. And this is how God, the the, the master chef of creation, has has designed humanity to work. Male and female, and His His image better together. In fact, we need one another to fulfill God's purpose, right? In Genesis 1, we are given the job description of reigning with God over creation as kings and queens, ruling His good world. But then you get to chapter 2, and Adam is alone. He's by himself, and he's overwhelmed with that task. It's actually the very first thing in the Bible that God says is not good, right? Imagine trying to rule and garden planet Earth all by yourself. But then you get verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now again, when we read Genesis 2.18, we often put the accent on family or community and relationship when we think about this verse, and and that is important, that's part of it, absolutely. But first and foremost, in the context of Genesis 1 or 2.18, the context is the, the work of ruling and reigning in the garden, their work together. It's too much for Adam to do alone. He cannot do it by himself. And so God makes a helper. Now, sometimes we can get caught up on that word helper because it can, in English, it can kind of sound to me like, oh, this is my little helper. And sometimes we use that language uh, that way in English. But but the, the Hebrew word for helper here is in no way demeaning. How do I know? Two reasons. First, God has already made it clear in Genesis 1.27, the equality of men and women, absolutely clear. So we've already established that a chapter earlier. But second, and even more compelling, the Hebrew word translated helper is most often used of God in the Old Testament. God is the one who is described as a helper more than anyone else in the Old Testament. And it's actually in military context primarily. It's a military term describing God's relationship with His people Israel. God is our helper, our defender, our rescuer. So, for example, you get this language in the psalm, Psalm 121. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
Same word used in Genesis chapter 2. And God describes the woman not just as a helper, but as a helper, ESV translated, is, is fit for him. It literally means as opposite him. Not a clone, not a competitor, certainly not a slave, but rather two distinct humans made to be different, to complement one another, to do the work that God has called us to do. So, women in this room, you have something that every man needs in order to rule and image God in the world. Likewise, men, you have something every woman needs to do the same. We are glorious together, and we're, we're better together. We need one another. Let's strive to increasingly see one another in that way, not, not as competitors, but as partners. And not just in marriage, again, in, in all of life to accomplish God's purposes in the world. In some cultures and times, the idea of the sameness and equality of men and women has been scorned. In other times, in other cultures, the idea that there's any real meaningful difference between men and women has been ridiculed. But Christians look at God's design and see both are true. Because of the God that we reflect, we are the same and distinct, on purpose, for glory, for better. Now, I imagine some of you could be thinking at this point, okay, Bill, that, that sounds great, I think, and, and maybe if things actually worked that way, I could get on board with this. But are we so far away from this in the world? And, and the Bible is clear about this. It doesn't shy away from the fact that we are broken. You are, you are right. <laughs> While it is true that we are not a mistake, our bodies are not a mistake, it is also pro- profoundly true that we are broken. And we're going to talk a lot more about the brokenness of the world when we get to Genesis chapter 3 in a few weeks, which in particular talks about the brokenness of the world in general, but, but also focuses on the, the ways that the relationships between men and women have been altered, broken in the fall. But we need to go there a little bit even now. So, for example, when we allow cultural stereotypes to determine what it means to be male or female, right? So, things like, you know, men, men like trucks, and, and women like flowers, and men are tough, and women are sensitive. Right? Those are cultural stereotypes, Those are not biblical prescriptions. And too many of us and too many churches have allowed cultural stereotypes in either direction to dictate our understanding of Scripture. We start with with what our culture says maleness and femaleness is, and we read that back onto the Bible. We have to work the other way, friends. Yes, we are the same. Yes, we are distinct. But please do not allow one particular culture at one moment in time to to determine completely how you understand your maleness or femaleness. The Bible gives all kinds of freedom for how you express it, and some of us need to repent of of unbiblical stereotyping of men and women. And men, some of us need to repent of the ways that we have objectified, oppressed, or even abused women, Or, or, or looked the other way at injustice, and, and sure, there are things that women 
can and should repent of too. But when we look at our cultural moment, hashtag me too movement, church too movement, it's men who need to lead in repentance. Lust, pornography, dehumanize women, treating them as things to be used rather than who they are, people made in the image of God to be known and revered as co-rulers in God's good design. And abuse, whether it's emotional or physical or sexual, it has no place. And it cannot be hidden under the guise, some kind of twisted reading of Scripture, under the guise of, of some twisted category of submission. God will be the judge of that. Or if you allow women at work to be degraded or paid less or the butt of jokes that you would never think of making of a man, it cannot be. And women, I am sorry because there are times when Christians, when pastors, the church, who should be the example in this area, have been a part of the problem. And it's not okay. I'm sorry. If you're here this morning and you feel trapped in an unsafe situation, whether it's at work or in your home, school, please talk to any of the men or women who are on our staff at Christ Community. We will help you. You are not alone. And if you are here and you are realizing Bill, maybe, I, maybe I'm the abuser in this situation. God's showing me that right now. Come talk to us as well. God is not done with you. He's not given up on you. He can change you. Talk to us. The church has got to be at the front of repentance and transparency and justice. And also love in the midst of all of this, right? Because, listen, you might be here this morning or you might have someone in your neighborhood or in your workplace who is confused about their gender. And we want to help. And if that's you this morning, confused about your gender, we want to love you. You know, there's still so little that we really know about gender dysphoria and those who feel unsure whether they should be male or female or identify as transgender. While God made us male and female on purpose, those aren't social constructions. We know that our world is broken, and that affects our bodies and our brains and our minds, all of it. It's a comprehensive broken enough, and it's hard enough, right, to be human. We're all looking for the same things, for love and acceptance, hard enough to be male and female, but to be unsure of where you fit on that, I can only begin to imagine the difficulty, the pain, the confusion of that. So yes, it matters. It's not just a social construction. God gave you your body on purpose. It's, it's not a mistake. You are not a mistake. And yet, if you find yourself struggling with a disconnect between those things, Let's talk, because we want you here. Jesus loves you, and, and we may not agree on everything, but we will do our best to love you the way that He loves you. And He loves us beautifully, with dignity and value, men and women alike. 
Which is, again, why Jesus was so incredibly appealing to women in the first century. In a highly patriarchal society in the first century, Jesus had a unique appeal to women who treated them with dignity and humanity for who they were. Listen now, Dorothy Sayers, one of the first women to be awarded a degree from Oxford, explains it in her little book titled, Are Women Human? Now, this is a longer quote, but, but stay with me through it, because I think it is one of the most profound things written about Jesus outside of the Bible. Dorothy Sayers writes this. She says, perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this. There never has been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, never treated them as either the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without quarrelnessness, who praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female who had no axe to grind, no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. So friends, yes, there is brokenness inside and out, male and female, minds and bodies, but this is not the end of the story because a true and better human has come. And we are being redeemed, male and female, body and spirit. Your body is not a mistake. And how do I know? How do I know? Because Jesus, the Son of God, took a human body. And He has not and He will not ever give that body up. And his body, it wasn't, isn't some special superhero kind of Thor body, right? In fact, Isaiah tells us his body wasn't even much to look at at all. We, we get almost no physical description of Jesus in the Bible. We did get a little glimpse in Isaiah 53, prophesying about the Messiah, says he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. I mean, have you ever looked in the mirror and just felt plain or ugly, even? Take heart. Jesus' body would have never been on the cover of men's health. It never would. It was, or it was a plain, no appearance that we should desire him. No majesty. It was a really ordinary body. Have you ever looked at your body and felt shame or felt exposed because of what you've done with your body or what's been done to your body? Brothers and sisters, Jesus hung naked, naked on a cross, completely exposed, shamed and embarrassed, mocked and abused. He knows the feeling of shame. He paid for the abuses. He despised them on the cross so that we could be set free of our sin and our shame. And he died and he rose again with a body. I cannot emphasize this enough. Jesus still has a human body. He still has it. He didn't give up his body when he ascended to heaven. There is right now at this moment a beating heart and breathing lungs. Human 
lungs in heaven, in Jesus. Can you believe it? And one day, because of Jesus' bodily death and his bodily resurrection, I too will rise, though I die, and be raised to new life with an imperishable body to enjoy life with Jesus in the new heavens, in the new earth, heaven and earth joined together forever. Your body is not a mistake. Your body is broken, but it can be redeemed. And you see this arrangement of being embodied as male and female. It's not an accident. It's not a mere biological necessity. It's God's good design now and forever. It's not like God said, I tried this human body matter thing and then it didn't work out so well. And so when I do this again in new creation, I'm not going to do the body thing anymore. No. When he looks at you, and this really struck me this week as I was studying, I think often when I've used that phrase, when God looks at me, I think what I usually mean is he's looking at my heart, he's looking at my emotions, but when God looks at he looks at the whole of your body. When God looks at me, he sees me, my body, not just my mind, not just my heart. And when he looks at you, not just your heart, not just your mind, but when he looks at your body, he says, you are my beloved daughter. You are my treasured son. You are good. You are my creation, and I love you, including your body. Literally from the tips of your embodied toes to the top of your embodied head, you are very good. Jesus died as one of us. He rose from the dead as one of us. Not so that we could escape our bodies someday, but so that he could make them new like his. And so as we turn to communion this morning, we feast not on Jesus' spirit broken for us, but on his body broken for you. Not, not on his immaterial essence poured out for us, but in his blood shed for you. Jesus is embodied. He will be embodied, and we will see him with embodied eyes one day in the new heavens, in the new earth.